and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is to say, what's going on inside becomes evident to those around you through what you say, how you say it, the tone, and so on. But even if you desire to keep your thoughts to yourself and say nothing, others around you will understand where you are and what you're thinking. Experts tell us that body language accounts for 50 to 70% of all communication. For example, if you're speaking face to face with someone and their eyebrows go up, what does that tell you? Surprise. Yeah, eyebrows up means surprise. If their eyebrows come together, what does that suggest? Would be anger. If your inner eyebrows go up and the outer is kind of down, that would indicate sadness. If you bite your lip, what does that mean? That's anxiety. If you purse your lips. Okay, I'm not puckering up, I'm just pursing my lips. Okay. That's distaste. You don't like something, okay, that you just heard or witnessed. Uh, if the corners of the mouth go down, what does that indicate? Sadness. If the corners of your mouth go up, now, you've got to be careful there because you would say, well, happiness. But if the eyes aren't engaged, it's a false smile, okay? A real smile is the corners of the mouth going up and crow's feet appearing by your eyes, okay? That's a true, honest smile or joy, happiness, right? So you've got to be careful. They say the eyes are the windows of the soul. So body language, facial expressions will communicate your emotional state at the moment. And in our gospel lesson for today, there's something very important that indicates your spiritual state of being, where you're at spiritually. So let's take a look. On the back of your bulletin, the gospel reading for today from Luke chapter 20, and I, we begin with the cast of characters that's written before you. The owner of the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel, the, the, peop, the Old Testament people of God. The vine dressers, uh, Israel's leaders, and, and really anyone who rejects God's spokesman. The servants are God's spokesmen prophets, John the Baptist, and so on. And, and really, I would include anyone, it uh, could be a lay person, who's speaking the message of Christ to someone else. And then there's the owner's son, that of course is Jesus Christ. And so what we see in the gospel reading for today 
is God's inner thoughts being revealed. His heart is revealed, Roman numeral one, and that's indicated by this repetitive sending of the servants. Three times servants are sent, revealing God's patience. Reveals his patience. And the Old Testament makes this clear. I cite Deuteronomy 19.15, 2 Corinthians 13.1. They both say the same thing. Every matter is settled on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So when you have something done three times, we've made this point before, you can believe it, okay? So this is an indication of God's sincere patience with his people. And I would also cite 2 Peter chapter 3, where uh, Peter writes these words, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Our God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, same God, is a God of great patience, great patience. And point B, the sending of his son reveals or testifies to his love, his great love for his people. And I cite 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love believes all things. And this owner of the vineyard, i.e. God, continues to believe that these people will welcome whom he sends, in this case, his own son. Now, you and I say, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Well, God is fooled three times. He sends servants three times, but he still believes in these people. He still believes that if he sends his son, and we'll say more about this in just a moment, that they'll turn, that they'll be ashamed, because that's indicated in the original language. They will be ashamed when they see his son. We'll come back to that. But point number two, the vine dressers attempt to replace the owner. They attempt to replace the owner. They want the vineyard for themselves. They want to own the vineyard. And I've, I've read that in the ancient world, when a man died without an heir, in other words, if the son is killed, that's his only son, then it squatters rights from that point forward. And so these tenants, these vine dressers, know the law, and they know that if they kill this man's son, if he's the only son, and if they can stay on that land for three years and maintain it for three years, it's theirs. So that's, that's their thinking. That's what's going on upstairs. And it's similar to you and I. You and I want to own the world. Scripture indicates that we are not owners, but we're managers. We're stewards of what God has given. But all too often, we see ourselves as the owners. Point C, God gives his vineyard to others. See, it begins with Israel, but if Israel's unfruitful, 
it's going to be given to non-Israel, to Gentiles, revealing his commitment to fruitfulness, his commitment to fruitfulness. He will have fruit. He didn't plant the vineyard for nothing. He's going to have fruit one way or another, with you or with someone else. And that's the warning. If Israel doesn't produce the fruit, maybe you will, by his grace. And ironically, it's the death of the son himself that makes the vineyard fruitful. It's his death that produces the fruit. Ironically, now Jesus said in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, unless a kernel of grain falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's what the death of Jesus produces. It produces real fruit, fruit that will last, fruit in your life and in mine. It's his work. If a man remains in me, Jesus said, he will bear much fruit. That's the secret of fruit bearing. It's remaining in the Lord Jesus. All the strength, all the ability is his. So God's heart is revealed. He's patient, he's loving, and he will have fruit. Roman numeral two, the thoughts of many hearts are being revealed at the same time. And I draw your attention to verse 14. But when the vine dressers saw him, meaning the son, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir, come let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours, so on and so forth. Okay, they reasoned among themselves. Now I cite Luke chapter two, verses 34 and 35. These are the words of Simeon to Mary, the mother of Jesus, when he's being presented in the temple. Simeon meets Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus, and he says this, Jesus' mother, he says, this one is appointed for the fall and for the rise of many in Israel and for a sign that will be spoken against. And a sword will pierce your own heart as well and the reasonings of many hearts will be revealed. The reasonings of many hearts will be revealed. You see, when Jesus enters the scene, all of a sudden, you get an idea of where people stand, where people stand with respect to God. Jesus reveals it. Jesus said, whoever sees the Son has seen the Father. How you deal with the Son is exactly how you deal with the Father himself. When Jesus walks into a room, you know where people stand. Now, I've shared this story before, but I, th I think it bears repeating. It's a story about King Hussein of Jordan. Now, he passed away in 1999. And now his son, uh, Abdullah, is on the throne of Jordan. But in the early 1980s, there was an attempted coup against Hussein. And uh, he had heard about this plotting that was going on. 
75 of his army officers were meeting to overthrow him, to overthrow the government, and establish a military dictatorship. As soon as King Hussein found out, he said to, his, to an aide, he said, get me a small helicopter. He got into the small helicopter. They flew to the building where the plotters were meeting, landed on the roof, and the king said to the pilot, he said, if you hear gunfire, leave. The king went down two flights of stairs, entered the room where the mutineers were meeting, and he confronted them and he said this. He said, I understand you're plotting to overthrow the government. He said, if you do this, you will divide the army. There will be much bloodshed in the country and thousands upon thousands of people will die. But here I am, kill me. If you want to do this, kill me. That way only one man will die. The officers stood there in stunned silence and then as one, they rushed forward to the king, knelt down and kissed his ring and they kissed his feet. Why? Because they felt shame in the presence of such nobility that this man would give his life willingly to avoid the shedding of any blood. They felt ashamed. Now, something very similar is happening in our gospel reading for today. When you take a look at verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. That's, uh, his son is more valuable to him than his own life. I mean, this is upping the ante now. Probably they will respect him. That word respect is literally, it means shame. Literally, it means shame. This is the way I think it would be better translated. Perhaps they will feel shame when they see him. Perhaps they will feel shame when they see him. Well, we know the story in the parable, they did not feel shame. They should have. They should have turned. This was a loving gesture to receive the son. I mean, all would have been forgiven. To receive the son is to have all forgiven and everything made right. But it was refused, you see. It was refused. And so point A, Jesus precipitates or, or causes the most important movement of one's life either toward God or away from God. When Jesus enters the scene, either you move closer to God or you move away. There's no middle ground. There's no fence sitting here. If you're not for him, you're against him. If you're not against him, you're for him. It works both ways. But there's no middle ground. And point B, to turn away from grace is to turn toward judgment. It is to turn toward judgment. We do that ourselves, you see. I mean, we're born under judgment. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're born under judgment, according to Scripture. But we remain under judgment when we refuse the Son. Roman numeral three, the thoughts of your heart revealed 
You see, your spiritual condition comes to light whenever the subject of Jesus Christ comes up. You know, point A, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? To see, according to Jesus, to see the Son is to see the Father. He is the express image, the exact image of the Father, according to Hebrews 1. Doesn't matter what religion you are, doesn't matter if there's no religion in your life, the real question, the, the, the question that the world constantly deals with is what do you think of Jesus? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and immediately the Savior is promised. The one who will overcome the serpent. He will be wounded, he'll suffer, but he'll overcome the adversary. He's promised, you see. At the cross, that promise is fulfilled, and we see the Savior removing the sins of the world, including yours and mine. Today, that forgiveness is distributed. It's scattered through the preaching of the word through the administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's freely given out. And on the last day, when our Lord returns to judge all people, the question will be this, how did you respond to Jesus? That's the question. Because Jesus says in Matthew 25, this is all very clear, whatever you do for the least of these brothers of mine, You've done it to me. Now the brothers in Matthew's gospel are the spokesmen, those who preach the gospel. But that would include you or me when we share the gospel with, with anyone. How people respond to you is how they respond to Jesus. And how they respond to Jesus is the way in which they respond to the Father himself. See, it's all about him. It's all, all life revolves around that issue, and that reveals who you are inside, whether you're a child of God or not. Now, if you're not one today, we trust and hope and pray that you will be. So point B, your answer becomes a verdict courtroom verdict. A verdict is a finding of fact. It's the truth that comes out of the trial, out of the courtroom scene. And it's, it's a self-imposed verdict which reveals your guilt or your innocence. To receive the Savior, to trust in Him, is to be innocent. It's to be right before God. This verdict is, is, is a decision about you that you yourself render. And so the question is this. On Judgment Day, will you stand before God on the basis of your own righteousness? Or on that day, will you stand before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness? You see, to stand before God on the basis of your righteousness reveals your spiritual reality. To stand before God on the basis of your own righteousness reveals a prideful heart and an unbelieving heart. 
to stand before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Did I say the wrong thing? To stand before God on the basis of your righteousness is a prideful heart, an unbelieving heart, yes. To stand before God on the basis of Christ's righteousness is a humble heart, a faithful, believing heart. In Jesus' name, amen.